The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So as I mentioned last week, it's nice to take the time in September because we all have this sense of beginning anew come September because we all, most of us at least, started school year after year after year in September. So there's always a sense of like, wanting to get back to the basics. So what is it that we do when we meditate? So I started talking about this basic approach to the mind that we call mindful awareness. When we talk about awareness practice or this path of awakening or mindful awareness as a practice, we're really talking about this dynamic, this dynamic that includes elements of confidence or faith, like there's actual confidence in the mind, there's something to wake up to, or there's something to be seen or understood that my mind isn't understanding yet. So this is a basic humility. Without it, there's really no practice. So there has to be some element of confidence or faith that there is a wholesome training to undertake. Otherwise, we won't pick it up. And then... To whatever degree there is that confidence, there's going to be an inspiration. That's the energy because nothing happens without an application of mind. Everything, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, from the Buddhist teachings point of view, everything happens because of intention in the mind. So if there's no intention to see something, we won't see it. It's like, you know how this happens. We could be driving home and if there's not an intention to really see what's going on, we'll still make it home, but we won't be aware of anything. We might be conscious in the sense of knowing to turn out of the way of that or turn out of the way of that other thing, but there won't be any reflective knowing of what's going on. There won't be any learning. We'll just be lost in thought and then suddenly we realize we're home. But that's not mindfulness. That's your conscious in the sense of you're sensitive driving your car to what you're seeing and everything else, but you're not reflectively aware that this is what's happening. So you need energy. The mind has to apply itself. And this application allows for mindfulness. Mindfulness really implies this continuity. It's not really mindfulness when you have just a moment of awareness. But it's that sustaining awareness that allows the mind to understand how things are unfolding. You know, I, I mentioned this the last uh, couple of months ago maybe. You know, if you were a naturalist studying gray, the gray squirrels of Minneapolis or something like that, it wouldn't help to do a momentary observation of a gray squirrel. You wouldn't learn too much. But if you have a good perch and you observe a gray squirrel continuously for several hours and then several hours every day for several days or several weeks or several years, well, you're going to learn something about gray squirrel, squirrels, what they eat, what they do, what they're afraid of, what they are safe, feel safe around. So it's the continuity of mindful awareness that leads to, one, a steadiness 
right? Because just to have that continuity of awareness, the mind has to learn not to believe all the reactive energy that tends to arise. Like, you maybe noticed this tonight, you know, so I suggested, okay, just be aware of the body sitting. Or if you want something more specific, be aware of the breath moving in the body, like the touching sensations as the air goes in and out of the nostrils. So then maybe you decided, you know, you felt inspired, so you applied your mind to the, the task, honey, notice the breath coming in, notice the breath going out. And you did that, and then you probably noticed one tendency of the mind after another, oh, I should worry about this, I should plan this, I should wonder who that person is sitting next to me, I should, so many, you know, oh, I should look and complain about this pain in my knee. There were so many opportunities to stop paying attention to the breath. So this steadiness, which we call concentration, happens when there's enough faith, enough energy in the activity of mindfulness, the continuity that the mind gets really steady. It knows how not to be fooled by those, all those other impulses to do something else. No, no, no. I'm just going to study the present moment as it actually is, and I'm going to train in this continuity of awareness of the present moment by using the present moment reality of the body sitting or the present moment reality of the body breathing, or the present moment reality of hearing. So I'm going to use one of these particular anchors in order to develop this continuity of attention to the point of steadiness. We call this samadhi or concentration, where the steadiness of present moment awareness isn't broken. So we, it's steady, and it's very distinct when you get some continuity of mindfulness and the normal tendencies of the mind to wander, to react, to get you know, caught up in this and that, the mind just doesn't take the bait. right? And in not taking the bait, the mind experiences itself as being steady and calm and happy. It's happy by not being thrown around by all of the normal distractions it normally gets identified with and runs with and proliferates with. So this is the concentration. And then the last piece is, when there is that steadiness, the mind just starts to see things more clearly. Because the only thing that was in the way of the mind having insight or seeing things clearly was the lack of steadiness. It was just too superficial to see things clearly. This is what we mean by mindful awareness. And this changes everything. So again, when you hear the word mindfulness or mindful awareness or this practice of awareness or this path of awakening, these are just different words or phrases that's really talking about this dynamic, these wholesome qualities working together, all in alignment, all with the same purpose of seeing things as they are. Seeing this, whatever this is, this reality, this experience, this subjective happening of my mind and body, seeing it as it actually is, liberated from the conceptual ideas I have about what's going on or who I am or what I'm doing, and seeing things in a more direct, immediate, and liberating way. 
So this is the path of mindfulness. And I mentioned last week that the first part, and I emphasized this in the guided meditation tonight, the first part of the training is asking the mind to pick up a theme that supports mindful awareness or present moment awareness, like the breath or the sensations of sitting or the experience of hearing. There are many other themes you can pick up as a support for the continuity of awareness and noticing when you've lost it. You know, one of the reasons people use meditation phrases like breathing in, breathing out, right? So they're repeating something in their mind, not that you have to do this, but some of the reasons people do this is that when you stop using that phrase, you know the mind has wandered. It's lost in thought. It's doing this, it's doing that. It's feeling like it's appropriate for me to be judging the person next to me because they're breathing loudly. Or it's appropriately appropriate for me to be worried about what's going to happen on Monday or what I said. I can't believe I said that. It always There always is stuff for the mind to pick up. And normally, an untrained mind, it basically has permission to do whatever it wants. So it does a little of this and a little of that. And after a few seconds of doing any one of the many, many things that my mind might do, it starts getting stressed because nothing's very satisfying. Would it, like if I, even if I pick up a pretty juicy theme like, God, what happens if I win the lottery? Or, you know, I wonder if this person likes me. Or even that gets stressful after a while. Even the juicy things aren't very satisfying after a few moments of thinking. Yet. So we put it down, we pick up something else. And we try to extract some juice from that, and that gets old after a while. We put that down, we pick up something else. And this is what a normal, untrained mind does. That means all of us, almost all the time. Our mind is just flitting about, trying to extract some life energy, some juice, some excitement, some sense of meaning, personal meaning, from one mental activity after another, never finding anything ultimately very satisfying, so always seeking something else. And then when nothing works, we wonder, why isn't anything working? So we try to extract some meaning, some juice from trying to figure out, but intellectually, like why is life so unsatisfying? Why isn't it working? Why isn't my mind or heart happy? So the Buddha's, you know, the Buddha from his direct experience realized that, well, the dissatisfaction isn't so much about what the mind is doing, it's looking in the wrong place for satisfaction. So it doesn't matter, like, it isn't that one place is better than another. Any place the mind goes isn't going to be satisfying. So the satisfaction from the this path of awakening, that we sometimes call it, or just this training in mindful awareness, present moment awareness, the real satisfaction or the liberation comes not from finding the right place, but from the mind ceasing its endless seeking of a place. Because the dissatisfaction was actually based on the wrong idea that I have to go somewhere to find a place that's satisfying. When that idea, that wrong idea is put down, then the issue of satisfaction and non-satisfaction, it just doesn't exist like it normally exists in our conventional mind. Tonight I want to talk about this particular 
part of the mindfulness. So the first is just tracking present moment awareness. Part of that moment-to-moment tracking, because in order to really stick with it, it's a little bit, having never ridden a wild bronco, you know, but I did know somebody who was, I think the women's champion bronco rider for one year back, this is back in the 80s, mid-80s. We were both teaching at the school in California. Anyway, you know, the idea is you're not going to out-muscle the horse. So the idea is how to surrender or submit to what the horse is doing in order to stay on a little bit longer. You know, you just have to trust that, well, when the horse does this, I do that. And when I'm not going to sort of do anything other than what the horse is doing. And it's a little bit like that. The continuity of mindfulness is not changing the mind. It's understanding what the mind is doing. So in order to have the continuity, in order to stay with it, every moment, instead of like any sort of control mechanism, it's more like giving yourself to what is. So when the breath is coming in, instead of like the, the habit-based mind, the conventional mind, might expect the in-breath to be a particular way. And so if the in-breath actually isn't the way we expect, then we might want to manipulate the in-breath to match the expectation. But that will be stressful very quickly, controlling the in-breath. But what mindfulness understands is in order for continuity, for the mind to for the mindfulness to be continuous, then the mind, the knowing mind, the attention, it has to be willing to receive the in-breath as it actually is. So there's this full, you know, you could say full acceptance. On the one hand, it's a turning toward it. And another way of talking about it is like a full receiving of it, not needing it to be different than it is. This is true with knee pain, if that's what's predominant in the moment, or an interesting or disturbing sound, or a a difficult memory that might have arisen in the mind. But there's a full opening, a full trusting, a full interest, not a struggle. So the opposite of struggle. And remember, an opposite of struggle does not mean backing away. Like the only way we know we know we're not struggling with experience is if we're willing to open to it, to lay our heart down, to open the heart up, to relax thoroughly, to be undefended. So you have to. There's a real art to not judging, to not control. This is especially true with pain. This is why we want to practice with relatively easy pains, not really strong. Intense pains, physical or mental or emotional. Because we'll gain some confidence. Like when you have just workable pain in the knee or workable emotional pain, then you can, you'll be willing to try to experiment with not defend, the heart not defending itself from the pain. Well, what would happen if I just completely allow this emotional hurt to just hurt, not be afraid of it at all, or this knee pain to just, because any kind of sensation, including physical pain, it's just movement. It's not a pain. We use the word pain, but physical 
unpleasant physical sensation isn't pain. Pain's an idea. Bad pain, right? It has a fixed, seems like a fixed entity. But actually what unpleasant physical sensations are, even if they're very intense, it's a movement. It's a changing, flowing, dynamic of sensation energy. And it can be trusted. But of course, you know, it takes practice. So that's why one of the reasons we sit still in our formal training, we call our morning meditation session, you know, we put aside 45 minutes, let's say, or 20 minutes or an hour, depending on what you have, or some of you sit in the evening. And we sit still because that stillness gives us an opportunity instead of moving every time there's physical discomfort, we've got this opportunity in a safe way. Well, let's just be with this discomfort. And we choose an an amount of time where the physical discomfort that tends to arise in that amount of time is workable for this mind with this much training, this much confidence, this much energy, this much skill in mindfulness, that continuity, this much samadhi, stillness or steadiness, and this much insight. Because those are the five factors or qualities that make up our practice. So we have the tracking, the not forgetting the present moment, the turning fully toward what's real, what's predominant, or the receiving of what's real or predominant moment by moment by moment. And there's the learning. Like when we do have some continuity, I mentioned this last week, we really learn what's skillful and what's not skillful. Like I mentioned in the sit tonight, or maybe I, maybe it was this morning, I forget if I mentioned it, but often in the instructions, you know, when you're sitting there and you have some continuity, then the appropriate question to arise is, when there is some continuity of mindfulness, in what way can I pay attention to the breath or pay attention to whatever's predominant that supports a greater steadiness, a greater clarity, a greater ease, a greater interest, all these wholesome qualities? Like, how can I support the strengthening of all the wholesome qualities that are already here? And how is it that I ruin it? So we have some nice steadiness. The mind is relatively balanced. There is some interest. There is some calm. Clearly that doesn't last forever. Well, how is it that we ruin it? What attitude, what choices, what qualities arise in the mind so that the mind at times ends up all entangled, burdened, reactive, distracted, caught up, right? How do we fall into those holes? And like I mentioned, you know, it's not accidental when we fall into one of those holes and get really all bound up. And the thing about, you know, the formal meditation times is when our mind does get all bound up, it's really obvious. You know, we're out in the middle of the day doing a bunch of different things. We could be in a real funk, all enraged about something and just stewing, stewing, stewing as we're washing the dishes and stewing, stewing, stewing as we're getting ready for bed and stewing, stewing, stewing as we're trying to fall asleep. And we won't even notice like how bound up the mind is. But when we're sitting in this, you know, this really beautiful 
way, this, this way that has so much integrity where just even symbolically, energetically, there's a sense of like being right in the middle of our lives, unafraid, willing to be alert, willing to take it as it is, life as it is. Well, if we're all bound up, enraged or reactive in some way, hitting ourselves or whatever it might be, it's going to be apparent. We're going to, oh, this is interesting. This is hell. Now, how did I get here? What did the mind do? How did the mind see things? This is where hindsight is very valuable. What happened? What can the mind do now to extract itself, to alleviate this? So, the whole point, or one of the most relevant fruits of getting some continuity is that we can actually begin to understand how we fall into states of hell and how we can support the arising of really beautiful, balanced, clear, light, buoyant, happy states of mind. Because it's lawful. It doesn't happen from the outside. It isn't that somebody is damning us from the outside or some angel is making things perfect for us. The unfolding of this heart and mind is lawful. We don't control all of the causes and conditions, right? But we control one of the most important, which is this presence or absence of mindful awareness. Not having mindful awareness means we are doomed to habit energy. Having mindful awareness means that as things are unfolding, the mind can learn. So even if the mind is doing something really stupid, like taking the bait, we think of somebody that something that makes us angry, the mind gets identified, begins to stew, or thinks about something we really want, the mind takes the bait, begins to stew about what I want, But then we see it, oh, this is how I create hell. Because we feel the entangling process. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes some time to create hell in the mind, to get all bound up, entangled. So if we can catch it and observe it, then there's a recoiling. The image the Buddha used is, if you've ever seen a feather touch a flame, It just sort of recoils, or even a little piece of fat in a flame. The Buddha used these images that when this, let's call it moral sensitivity, when the sensitivity of the heart observes itself, observes the mind itself doing something unskillful, setting in motion, suffering, stress, it recoils. Honey, don't do that. Right? Now, we already see that some places in our life when we are about to do something really unskillful. Whoa, that was close. You know, like not paying attention when we're driving. Okay, I'm going to put down my cell phone. (laughs) You know, this is not skillful. So, 
Just imagine all the little more subtle ways were just as unskillful, but it's just more subtle. We haven't learned to see how unskillful, how dangerous it is to pick up that memory with that attitude, to relate to the body with that attitude, to relate to another human being with that attitude. Just as dangerous, we, in the sense of causes for real stress, real suffering. But we just haven't done the math. We haven't seen cause and effect clearly enough. So this is a whole world of mindful awareness. It opens up this world. In Buddhism, we call it hiri otapa, wholesome regret, wholesome concern. The Buddha makes a huge deal about this part. In Buddhism, morality or ethical conduct, it doesn't come from the outside. This moral sensitivity is the natural fruit of the continuity of mindfulness. Without the continuity of mindfulness, there's no real morality. Because morality is a human mind, a human heart, understanding how dangerous it is to act out greed and aversion, anger, hatred, fear. And how beneficial it is to act out non-greed, like generosity and simplicity and renunciation and non-aversion, kindness and compassion. One uh, teacher that I've studied with, Ajahn Sushito, he's a Westerner, one of the senior Western monks in the Thai forest tradition. He's an abbot of a monastery in England, but he comes to the States and teaches from time to time. I think he's been a monk almost 40 years now. And uh, he has this great line. He says, ignorance, because, you know, if you don't know, the Buddha says there's really no evil in the world. Or the only really bad thing in the world is this uh, not understanding suffering. It's the not understanding suffering which is the cause of it. Not understanding where stress, where the clenching of the heart comes from. We think when we're clenching, when things are heavy or difficult, we just assume out of ignorance that it's because of you or the world out there. But where is the clenching of the heart? It's right here. This is where it happens. The heart understands something here. It misunderstands, rather, something here. Like, this is personal. This is about me. This is not okay. We keep telling the world out there that it's not okay. That doesn't mean the world out there is good or bad. It's just what it is. The world is what it is. The heart doesn't need to do this. So, Ajahn Sushito says, ignorance is an inability to develop a mature response to dukkha, to stress. Ignorance is the inability to have a mature response to stress. It's not that the fact that there are difficulties in life is the cause for dukkha, for stress, or the heart getting tight. The cause for the heart getting tight is we don't have a mature or wise way of relating to the difficulties, the ups and downs of life. 
we assume the appropriate response to life, the ups and downs in life, is to do this, to get tight. And then when we do this, we've distorted our way of being in the moment so that the whole world is now, the world that we're knowing is now seen through this lens, being a frightened little boy, being an angry little boy, you know, being a needy little boy, or whatever your internal story might be. Well, that is not a very good view to relate to the world from. So that's why we cultivate mindful awareness. It really allows for a freedom from being trapped in that wrong view, as we might say. You know, of course, suffering itself isn't liberating. But understanding what that is, is really liberating. This is what the Buddha said. He's talking about this force of hiri otapa, wholesome regret, wholesome concern. Practitioners, these two bright qualities guard the world. Which two? Conscience, so he uses that word, this translator, instead of regret, wholesome regret. Conscience and concern for the results of unskillful actions. If these two bright qualities did not guard the world, there would be no recognition of mother here, no recognition of mother sister, uncle's wife, teacher's wife, wives of those who deserve respects. The world would be immersed in promiscuity like rams with goats, roosters with pigs, or dogs with jackals. Because these two bright qualities guard the world, there is this recognition. So he gives us one example in this um, this discourse of you know this great, terrible history of men who tend to be physically stronger taking advantage of women sexually as a metaphor for all the ways brute strength gets its way in the world, whether it's the brute strength of one clan over another or one ethnic group over another or one nation over another or an individual who just gets his or her way, gets their way in a situation. And this is not foreign to us. I mean, I can think of many examples. We were up on the North Shore earlier this summer, my wife and I, and uh, we were staying at a place and somebody in a balcony above us, they were throwing bread out for the seagulls and they did not treat each other very well, those seagulls. And uh, once I was in Burma practicing for five months and the place, the monastery I was staying at, had uh, their meditation hall was just a big screened-in room like 15-foot walls, but all screen. And uh, they had a platform around the perimeter on the inside where you would sit off the ground a little bit. And so you sat right next to the screen. And then just on the outside, part of the time I was there, the dogs, the female dogs were in heat. And, um, and you know, I don't know if you know this, but in, often in the monasteries in Asia, a lot of animals would end up being there because they don't get treated like some of the animals, like some of the dogs rather, in the States, they don't get treated well at all. And so they get taken care of a little bit at the monasteries. They at least survive. But they just are, I mean, it is terrible. 
to watch the dogs fighting each other over the dog in heat. And, and this would like happen three, literally three or four feet away. So why aren't we doing that? I mean, we do do that, human beings, you know, to some degree in moments. We are no different than the seagulls or the dogs in heat or any number of other examples of animals. We often sort of maybe even politically incorrect to talk about animals in this way because we tend to idealize wild animals. But it's really useful to look at animals in a more simple, honest way, to see the beauty, the naturalness. Like there are some things about wild animals or just animals generally, they don't hold on to things, right? Their minds seem to be more simple and more complex psychological constructs, constructs like mine is, aren't as sticky for animals, other animals, as they are for human animals. You know, because we have language and I, ideas that come out of language, the idea of that's mine has a little bit more resonance than it might for other animals. But it still, for some animals, has some resonance. But we look at them and we realize, oh yeah, we can descend into that whoever has brute strength. And why don't we? Well, we have a sense of the danger of that. Yeah, I could steal things. There are a lot of things I could steal. I know where the money's kept, the donations at Common Ground. You know, I could take the money. There's all kinds of ways I could abuse the power that I have. You could abuse the power, privilege that you have. And sometimes, of course, we do, and hopefully a lot of the times we don't. Why don't we? Because of this conscience, this wholesome regret and fear, this wholesome fear. Like, what do I want to set in motion? Is this the life, is this the kind of mind and heart that I want to set in motion? Do I want to inhabit that space of somebody who does this, made that choice, acted in that way? Is there anybody in this room who can't remember something you did? Like in my case, I bring to mind a, maybe I was eight or so, maybe a little older. And my brother, who was four years younger, I remember making fun of him. We're recording tonight, aren't we? <laughs> maybe, he'll, maybe he'll listen. <laughs> Forgive me, Bob. <laughs> but he had a turtle. and uh, And I remember... The turtle wasn't doing well, you know. This is another way we make wrong choices. You know, we take animals thinking we're going to, it's okay to keep them, you know. And we enslave them and we put them in cages, you know, prisons basically, and they don't do so well. Anyway, I knew how to get under his skin, you know, and I just, because he loved this turtle. And I made fun of him for not taking care of it because the turtle was clearly dying. And of course, eventually it did die. And it really hurt him. And... I haven't forgotten. It's still, that imprint is still there in my heart, feeling badly at misusing the power that I had. What power did I have? I understood his vulnerability. He didn't want that turtle to die. He felt responsible. I knew how to hurt him. And I did. And uh, now, you know, that pain... I can either make this 
immense edifice of guilt, I'm such a bad person, or I can use that painful feeling to be careful in life. This is what we mean by wholesome regret, wholesome concern. This kind of, the way the past can live on in our hearts and minds, it's enlivening. We actually are grateful. It's like our teachers are close at hand. All the mistakes we've made, all the scars, the emotional and physical scars, from all the mistakes we've made, they can live here right in our hearts. And as we move through the day, different ones of those wounds come alive and they say, honey, be careful. It's easy to cause you and others suffering. One teacher I had talks about, you know, walking on the earth, walking around is like, you want to imagine you're walking on the chest of your mother. You know, there are actually living creatures on the ground. You know, when we're walking on grass, there are living creatures below us. You see, that's like a different kind of sensitivity. When we open our mouth, in the very much the same way, there are vulnerable creatures that we can harm based on the tone of voice, the body language. And so much of it, you know, we're not even aware of how we can harm people. It's like we can't even trust our conditioning. We may, just because we think we're not, just because we think we don't want to cause harm, doesn't mean we're not causing harm. Because we have so much cultural conditioning, we don't even realize our prejudices. We don't even realize, like uh, one of the things we're starting, just beginning to unpack as leaders at the center, is just the experience of privilege and how um, it affects, how unknowing we are. It's really the ignorance of unknowingness, not knowing. We don't know what we don't know. So instead of getting tight about that, we want to be relaxed into that reality. Yeah, we don't know what we don't know. I know I don't want to cause harm, but I don't know how to do that. Does anybody know how to live a life being a creature that needs to eat, earn a living, Invest your meager savings so you have something when you're older. How do we do that without harming? I was just talking to Steve Burt, one of the ancient ones in our community. He's been part of the community since it started, even before it started in the early 90s. And uh, I was talking to him, he's retired now, about, you know, like, what to do with our retirement money. You know, now that I'm finally middle class, and I actually have some retirement savings. It's like, well, okay, what do I do with that? And how do you figure that out? I don't know. Or how do you figure out what to buy when you go shopping for food? Or do you buy clothes from China or not? Made in China or not? Or do you have to investigate the kind of factory the clothes came from and how they treat the workers? And do you have the time for... See, it's, it's totally unworkable, but this is the world we live in, so we have to turn toward that, and we have to let it 
bring up a sense of humility. We have to do the best we can knowing we can't do everything. That's the world we live in around global climate change, around all the different kinds of inequities and injustices and uh, the unknown effects of privilege for those of us who have a privileged background and the unknown weights of trauma from those who have backgrounds of oppression, being oppressed in different ways. All of the unhealing that we've done is affecting how we are in the world. We're, like it or not, we're perpetuating it. So, instead of trying to have an answer, we're really leading with the sensitivity. This is really what we mean by morality. And this morality comes from one place, the continuity of mindful awareness. Because it's that sensitivity to the heart, right? Because the sensitivity in our hearts is the cumulative experience of the past, all the wounds. When we're in the vicinity of making mistakes like we've made before, speaking out of ignorance, rushing, holding back when we should be standing up, the heart is going to speak to us. When we feel that ache in the heart, we shouldn't want to squash it. We should say, what are you trying to tell me, honey? What are you sensing here? What's going on? What's, what's going on here that I'm not clearly seeing? What do I need to wake up to? But this is a very narrow path. We don't, you know, We think we want to be spiritual seekers, but when we get on this path, we realize how intense it is to be more and more sensitive to the sensitivity of the heart, to really feel what we feel. Because there's no room for compl- there's less and less room for complacency. It's like everything matters. How we show up in every moment matters. When we're having a conversation with somebody and we really are ready to get on with our life, it really matters. Because there's a human heart, you know, there's a sensitive heart here. And this person, they want to be seen. They want to be held. They want to be heard. But we've got other things. So how do we handle that delicate situation? And all the other delicate situations. Do we choose to make our heart more callous, more indifferent? less connected, less sensitive? Or do we continue in this path of sensitivity and exposure and rawness because we find we actually want the information. We want the information that that sensitivity brings us. The Buddha considers this sensitivity one of the great treasures. He he uh, outlines seven treasures. I'll just end with this and then open it up for discussion. So the seven treasures, the treasure of confidence or faith, the treasure of this reverence for life. So this is something that we uncover in the mind or in the heart. Confidence that there is a path, there is a training that actually leads to the release of the heart, that leads to not only good in this heart, 
but supports other beings as well. That's what he means by confidence. So there's the treasure of confidence or faith that we can do something with this heart. The confidence and reverence for life. Like, I can trust that. Like, life is so ambiguous in so many ways. Even though I can't not cause harm, I can respect life nonetheless. Even though, as a human, a living creature, I'm going to bump up against other living creatures. Still, I can have reverence for life. And then the third is this treasure of conscience, of wholesome regret. Like, this is really the the treasure of the past that lives on in the mind, in the heart, as the, its sensitivity. And the next one is the treasure of wholesome concern. Like being vigilant. I, I want to pay attention because I know it's easy to cause harm. So they work together. The Buddha calls these the guardians of the world. And then he goes on, he talks about the treasure of listening. So this is bumping into these teachings and being able to read them or hear them. Like connecting with somebody who has more understanding than you. So we've now, like it or not, we've connected with what the Buddha came to understand. So that's a treasure. The Buddha says that when somebody suffers, there's two possibilities. Their suffering, their stress, is going to lead them to beating their breasts and that breast, breast and lamenting and getting lost in sorrow and lamentation. Or, if the person's fortunate and they're suffering, they're going to go, is there anybody who knows something about this experience of stress and suffering that could show me the way? So he says, suffering leads to suffering or it leads to a wholesome search for somebody who might know something about it, what to do about it. That's the uh, fifth, I think. And then the sixth, Treasure in life is understanding something about generosity. The joy of giving everything away. Because, you know, we don't hold on, we can't hold on to anything. So to see life not as a, as a, like, happiness comes from accumulating things. That's the basic view. And that leads to suffering. This is the great falsehood about, like, the economy. Get more, you're more happy. It seems that way, but it's not actually true. And so, if you have even a thread of this understanding that actual happiness comes from giving things away, this is a treasure. And then the seventh treasure is wisdom. Really understanding the nature of the mind. The impersonal, natural nature of the mind. Instead of the wrong view that I'm apart from everything. So replacing wrong view with right view is the seventh treasure. All right, these are nice treasures. So confidence, virtue or integrity, this reverence for life, wholesome regret and wholesome concern working together, these two guardians that keep us from sort of a world of brute strength ruling. The treasure of uh, listening or running into these teachings, these wise teachings, the treasure of generosity and the treasure of discernment. So we have a little time before we need to end tonight. It'd be nice to 
hear from folks what you've learned in your own practice that you'd like to share with the group or any questions that you might have about the talk tonight. What comes to mind? Julia. Yeah. So Julia, and I'll repeat it also, uh, just so people know, we generally record on Sunday nights, so you might want to keep that in mind. So I'll just repeat the question or the comment that Julia made about when she's sitting and something difficult comes up, she's able to turn toward it in a reflective way and understand the roots, understand how the mind maybe is involved in it to some degree, yeah, and have some insight and maybe even realize some freedom or some liberation from that the weight of that afflictive state. But other times, maybe in daily life, we're in a sense surprised. And it's actually, it's not so much that it happens all at once, that as it's building, it doesn't get the mind's attention because the mind in daily life is more distracted. We're kind of doing all these different things. And so that the mind's taking the bait, reacting to the pain, proliferating around the pain, taking it all personally, that all starts to get ahead of steam until at some point the stress, the unpleasantness of it is strong enough that mindfulness gets triggered. Oh, oh, this really hurts. But by then it has a real head of steam. So you might have a moment of mindfulness but then the mind gets identified with the unpleasantness. This is happening to me. I don't like this. I want this to stop. And we take the wrong approach to the whole pattern. We personalize it. So the attempt to solve it or resolve it comes from the assumption that it's personal. Why did this happen to me? Who did this to me? Because generally, when we're taking pain personally, the thing that makes most sense is to blame somebody. Sometimes we blame ourselves and sometimes we blame others. And when we can't find anybody to blame, we get confused. And that's just a different expression of unpleasantness. Like, I don't know what's going on. We feel helpless or even despairing because we don't know who's making me suffer. Right? So the, the key is, if we can, to catch it sooner. Now that's not so easy. But the more we practice in that more microscopic way, in that protected container we call our daily set, where we're more likely to see this as an, a natural arising and understand the underlying causes and conditions of why the mind is getting caught, why the mind is reacting, why the mind is proliferating in this way, with sometimes in the moment, moment by moment, sometimes with some hindsight, Reflecting back, how did that happen? What? Oh yeah, oh, and that led to that. Ah, and that, that's how I got here. And now it feels like this. Then we can experiment. Like I said, well, what is a skillful way to relate? So even if we don't have a clue, we just try something. Okay, I'll try hating it. And then we see what happens. Oh, that doesn't help. The mind is just more entangled, more tight, more taut. That's not it. Maybe maybe I'll forgive myself. Honey, given all these causes and conditions, can't be other than the way it is right now. It isn't easy being a human being. I care about this pain. And you realize, 
oh, actually things feel a little bit better now. Well, that that's useful information. Hating myself makes it worse. Forgiving myself makes it better. Thinking I'm going to think my way out of this doesn't help. Turning exactly toward the unpleasantness of it is helpful, right? Because if I don't look the pain square in the face, so to speak, then my tendency of my mind is to think about it, which just tends to amplify the pain because we have the mental stress on top of the residual energetic pain in the body, emotional pain in the mind and body. So we'll learn a lot in that training ground and then eventually the faith will carry over into daily life. So even if it does surprise us, the mind's entanglements, and we realize, oh my God, I'm totally caught up in this this problem, this drama. But what the, the seed of wisdom that will be really helpful is almost uh, as if the mind sees it trans, as a transparent thing. Like, yeah, on the one hand, the mind is totally immersed, caught up in this drama. But on the other hand, the mind understands it's just a drama. So it's like the dramas that we get caught in are more porous or more transparent. We, we, we're sort of caught, but because we know we're caught, we're not really caught like we used to be caught. And this is the thing. It's not about not being caught. It's about understanding that the mind is caught. That makes all the difference. Because if we just think we're caught, we're going to want to get, out, get the hell out of it. But if we know that being caught isn't what it appears to be, we'll be more interested in it. And that's, the, that's when you know you've found the path. It's a path of understanding. It is not a path of running away from pain. It's a path of understanding the experience of human suffering, emotional suffering, psychic suffering, as well as the bumps and bruises of physical suffering, you know, and the more chronic problems and physical suffering. It's understanding it as a present moment reality that is so liberating. Not running from it and not denying, not controlling it. That's the difference. Now, that doesn't mean that when we're touching something hot, we don't move our hand away. Or when we're feeling really cold, we don't put a blanket around us. It just means that when there isn't a simple non-harming strategy to take care of emotional and physical pain that we have something we can do. We can understand it. And don't assume you th- uh, your idea that that's not going to help is true. Because, you know, like people always say, yeah, but if you're in poverty or if you're starving or if you're dying, what good is understanding going to do? But see, we assume there's a huge assumption that dying is inherently bad or having less than others means the heart has to be tight or receiving somebody's hatred has to be painful. No, there are saints that can be receiving a lot of abuse from another person and what they see is a suffering human being. They don't personalize that person's ignorance as if something is wrong in them. They understand this person's really suffering. doesn't mean they're not going to 
take care of themselves and get out of harm's way. But they're not going to create a personal problem. I don't have to suffer because the world is crazy. There's a lot of consumerism. There's a lot of climate problems. There's a lot of racial and economic injustices in this world. Tremendous suffering. So does wise compassion imply that we should be really tight because of all of this terrible suffering? Or is there a way to be really engaged, alert, turning toward, deeply understanding the roots of these places of suffering without being weighed down? Or do we have to be weighed down because there's suffering in the world? This is something for each of us to explore. And you can explore in very simple ways. With You show up, there's somebody, at, you go home tonight, the person you live with is suffering. They just experiment in that very pragmatic way. Is it somehow helping this person to be suffering because of, because of their suffering? Is it making me, my way of being with them more skillful to be tight or burdened because of their very real suffering? We have to end it here. I went over a couple minutes. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. I'm to take a breath or two together. And the sense of willingness to take in, to hear, and then to, in our own way, unpack these teachings, make them real. Because we care about this human life, this heart, because we care about this world of living beings. So may each of us, each in our own way, uncover the roots of real wisdom and compassion in our lives and be part of the causes and conditions for happiness, for the freedom from suffering here in our heart and in the world. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.